This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Michael Nygaard. He's an architect at Cognitect, the company behind Clojure, Clojure Script, Pedestal, and Datomic. He's spoken at a number of past O'Reilly Software Architecture Conferences, most recently at the October 2017 Software Architecture Conference in London. And he is the presenter of the Software Architecture Training Course, Architecture Without an End State which will occur on October 29th and 30th in New York City. He's also the author of the book Release It! Design and Deploy Production-Ready Software. The newly revised second edition of that book will be available soon. We'll talk with Michael about architecture without an end state and his eight rules for architecting systems that are built to accept change. Enjoy the show. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about architecture without an end state. You basically say that that the whole idea that there is an end state is a, a fallacy, right? Yeah, the way I like to describe it is that the only end state is when your company is shut down and you turn off all the servers and delete the software. <laughs> uh, that's the only real end. So if if we all stop chasing the the fictional or unattainable end state, what should you focus on instead? Well, it doesn't mean that you have no goals or no vision for changes that you want to make. Uh, instead, it means you accept that the changes that you're starting now will uh, coexist with changes that started last year and the year before and under the previous CIO's tenure. Uh, and so it's never really the case that you move your whole organization from one architectural style to another, but rather your organization has this uh, continual superposition of everything from you know function as a service uh, build by the second all the way back to mainframes uh, and they're they're all going to coexist so if you adopt that perspective then you stop trying to sort of rip up the pavement and do something completely new and you focus a lot more on incremental change i'd really like to see the end of the kind of three year plan where you say uh, year one, we're going to prototype and pick some products. Year two, we're going to rebuild the last 50 years worth of software in one year. Uh, and then in year three, we'll reap the benefits. Uh, year three never comes around, and we shouldn't be putting off benefits that long anyway. Uh, so I, I'm looking for ways and trying to teach ways that we can do things in a more continuous fashion and you know, use our current state as the starting point and accept that uh, even as we're making architectural changes, other people are making business changes, feature changes, functionality changes, and so on. Uh, so we, we have to be partners in all of this and not controllers who get bitter about not having their vision realized perfectly. And you've written about how embracing failure or em embracing problems is actually a proper approach and how disruptive events should be seen as opportunities. Can you talk more about that? A few years ago, I heard Mary Poppendick say, that a late change in scope was an opportunity, not a problem. It meant you had a, a chance to deliver a better application than you would have without that late change. I really like that perspective. It's not only just reality that we're going to have technical disruptions to our systems. Uh, it's reality that we're going to have business disruptions as well. I've seen many companies try to build a single system of record to store all of their information about uh, say, a customer or a product or something like that. And just about the time they get done implementing their single system of record and shutting down all the duplicates and getting down to, you know, one source of truth, they get acquired. And now their one source of truth is is only, you know, partially true or it's true only for their area. So whether we have technological change or we have business change, there's always something that's going to be disrupting our systems. 
So if we if we're building toward an end state where things are always working properly and and in their correct order, uh, we're we're going to create things that are needlessly fragile. I think that expecting a certain amount of disruption on a day to day basis from application to application and service to service, it forces you to do many of the same things you need to do to allow whole business units to arrive or depart. Uh, you build loose coupling. You focus on uh, shareable representations instead of proprietary data formats. You spend a lot more time documenting what goes on the wire rather than what goes inside the box at the end of the wire. You create circuit breakers and bulkheads. You create monitoring so that you can tell if uh, users are engaged with your software. All of these things help on on day-to-day operations, and they help with the larger sort of uh, tectonic disruptions. Regarding the the business factors that you mentioned a moment ago, how business factors like an acquisition or or a, a CIO leaving the company can be disruptive. Is that something that developers um, coming up with architectures often fail to put on their radar screens? Oh, absolutely. You know, we make these three-year plans for some architecture initiative, but the, the tenure of a CIO in the Fortune 500 is down around two years now. Yeah. So anytime a CIO comes in, two predecessors' uh, initiatives are still going, limping toward delivery, uh, and the new person probably won't be there when the new initiatives reach delivery. Uh, so we definitely need to find ways to uh, to make more incremental changes and deliver things that support themselves and create value all the way along, rather than having two years of investment followed by benefits in the third year. Before we go too much farther here, I wanted to ask if you could give us an example of an architecture design project that started off as aiming for an end state, but was able to eventually transform into a system that was designed to evolve. I'd like to talk about one from a retailer that I worked with. I I can't name them, uh, unfortunately, but uh, it was a typical sort of e-commerce system. They uh, had a uh, monolithic Java application that had been there for more than 10 years. It had a, a tremendous value in the data that it had where the sort of merchandising hierarchy had been built. You know, retailers tend to have their internal classification, department, class, and subclass. But this hierarchy for presenting to the customers had been tuned and honed for a long time. Well, we wanted to make that available to everything else, uh, all the other uh, services in the company, and, and break down the sort of walled garden monolithic approach. One thing we could have done was built a new service that would be the hierarchy service or the the catalog service. Uh, And then it would be the single source of truth or single authority there. We we shifted instead toward an approach where this hierarchy service admitted that it might not have everything. Uh, And it did that by always using full URLs to exchange identifiers. So if you got a URL that pointed to this hierarchy service, you could get more data about the the category or the things in the category. Uh, But if you got a URL that pointed to a different source of authority for a different portion of the world, that was okay. As long as both of them knew how to supply you with the right kind of information, uh, the right attributes in a format you could consume, then you could use data from one or two or any number of them. So, Michael, you've established eight rules for architecting systems that are built to accept change. And the first of which is what you just mentioned, right? Embracing plurality. Exactly. 
we we tend to build things that assume they hold all of the data in one system, or we send identifiers around that lack any context about who's the authority for that particular entity. I would I would like us to embrace plurality by saying it's it's not always going to be the case that one system has the entire horizontal universe of data, meaning the space of all the identifiers we need. And it's not always going to be the case that one system has the whole vertical extent of data, meaning all the attributes about those entities. We very often need to think about federating entities across multiple sources of authority that are only authoritative about certain facets of those entities. So when I talk about embracing plurality, I always tell students in my workshops, when you build a service, it should allow for any number of consumers. You know, there's, there's only three sensible numbers in computer science, zero, one, and many. So you should allow for many consumers, some of which haven't been built when you deploy your system, and some of which you have no prior knowledge of them. They just show up and start using your system. Much the same way that you would just show up and create an account on Stripe. You don't need to you know, have a, a lengthy discussion with the developers at Stripe before you begin using their API. It needs to be the same way for services inside companies. And then likewise, we need to assume that anything we're calling out to there may be a secondary supplier for that service, or there may be n numbers of suppliers for those services. If we do that, if we embrace that plurality, both on consumers of our work and suppliers to our work, then we really break down the kind of uh, hard coupling that we end up building towards systems. And in the future, changes will have a much smaller ripple effect across the rest of the organization. You mentioned identifiers a moment ago. What, what issues do architects usually have with identifiers? Oh, so many. <laughs> um, it's common to use something like uh, a string of numeric digits uh, as a, a naked identifier. Uh, first of all, there's just the rookie mistake of parsing that into an int or a long when it has no meaning as a number. You can't add two identifiers together. You can't multiply them. You know, there's there's no reason to turn it into a number. You, you should keep it as a string of digits. An identifier has sort of two different roles. One role for the identifier is just a token that I can receive and either pass along or pass back to let you know that we're talking about the same thing. The other role that it has is that I can somehow resolve that identifier and get details. So in the first case, I don't need any additional information about the entity or concept that we're talking about. I'm just, you know, holding the string for a little while and passing it along. But in the second case, I'm saying I've got this identifier and now I need to find out the attributes of the entity. Either I'm looking in my own database or I'm making a call to someone else. If you think about just a string of digits, if I'm writing the code to turn that string of digits into some useful set of attributes, I have to make some assumption about where I go for that. I have to assume that I have a local database and a table with that identifier type as a column so I can select on that. I have to know that there's some other system I need to talk to, and I have a URL template that I can interpolate that ID into. In both of those cases, I can only have one supplier of that information. In other words, because I have to already know the context for that identifier, I'm coupled explicitly to a single context. Whereas if I had a whole URL, well, the first use of an opaque token, you know, a string of digits or a string of ASCII characters for a URL, I don't care. Either one works just fine as a, a token. But in the second case, when I need to resolve it to some attributes, the URL includes its context about how to go resolve it. And so in that sense, the URL 
it has an explicit context that it carries along with it rather than the software having the implicit context in the first case. Okay, let's let's move on to uh, another one of your rules, which is to decentralize wherever possible. Can you can you talk about the concern that decentralization could cause duplication of work and what can mitigate that concern? Well, uh, I'll say it's not a not a risk that duplicated work can happen. It's a certainty that duplicated work will happen. But you know, the truth is, every organization I go to has duplicated work happening anyway. So when they have control processes that are supposed to reduce or eliminate duplication, they're certainly slowing down every project to go through budgeting, chartering, project management office, that sort of thing. But the duplication still happens. I actually, I don't fear duplication as much as many architects do. I view it more as multiple parallel experiments about what the best way to handle a feature or a type of user is. And one of them will do better than the other. One of them will have the right set of features or have the right ease of use uh, or be implemented in uh, a style and a technology that lets the developers adapt more rapidly. In some sense, you can view these two as competitors trying to acquire a user base within your own company. And so that competition can actually create value. So I see two benefits to not trying to eliminate the duplication. One is you avoid the slowdown that a centralized check and review process necessarily creates. And two, you get more ideas engaged. Now, I'll add to that, though, the thing most companies are really bad at is killing one of those two efforts when it doesn't do well. The way most companies fund things is they take resources away from the systems and services that have delivered, and then they give them to the ones that are running late or slow or over budget or too big a team. So that sort of defeats the kind of uh, evolutionary approach that we're taking when we have you know, competing, uh, uh, competing specimens trying to win a user base. We'd like to have the fitter of the two survive and the other one get killed off. So we need to change that thinking a bit. Trade-off policies are part of the decentralization consideration, right? How do you advise setting up effective trade-off policies? Yeah, the reason that trade-off policies are really uh, significant is because uh, when you decentralize, you gain speed, but you lose a certain amount of leverage. In other words, it's harder to get everyone moving in the same direction or especially to reorient them in a different direction. And so a well-understood policy for how to make trade-offs acts as a kind of magnetic field that helps align all the little vectors into a direction that you intend to go. Don Reinertsen, in his fantastic book, The Principles of Product Development Flow, talks about an example from Boeing where engineers on the 777 project were given uh, an allowance in terms of dollar cost of the aircraft versus weight. So they could, uh, they were authorized to make the decision themselves uh, without any approval to spend $300 of initial cost on the aircraft to save one pound of weight. So that might be different materials. It might be a different construction technique. It might be spending more time on the design to optimize it. But that policy was, in a sense, pre-approved. Everyone had been told that these are the variables that matter. This is what we're sensitive to. I find that the effort of defining that kind of policy actually helps developers and architects get more connected with the business in the first place, because you have to learn what matters. Uh, what is it that you know drives success for us? Right. And how do we quantify it? And 
if we quantify the measurement, how are we doing now? Do we have any idea? All of these things are, are sort of threads in the, the DevOps world, but in enterprise development, they're not as commonly observed. So I, I like starting the effort to define those trade-offs because it, it gets people engaged at a much deeper level than ever before. And, uh, and with that engagement comes a lot of creativity. And as far as how teams actually implement things, you've said that you like an internal open source approach where teams work like an open source project. Can you talk about the results that can come out of that approach? Well, it's actually one of the ways to uh, reduce that duplication. And it certainly helps cross boundaries and helps different parts of the organization uh, come together and close gaps between systems. Uh, it's basically creating some discoverability. You know, everybody's got their code in version control, but in the past, every version control system was sort of isolated. Discoverability was very low. There may be a company intranet, but honestly, it never gets updated. So now we're moving to models where companies are using uh, GitHub or similar servers that put the code right up front. You know, and you can search code across all the, the users and you no longer have these sort of isolated little islands of version control. You have things where, yeah, you can go looking to see who else uses this library or who else is uh, dealing with a similar kind of problem. And even if you don't reuse their project, you may be able to reuse some code or learn the concepts faster, if nothing else. So I really like that discoverability. At the macro scale, that kind of discoverability can help you avoid entire projects worth of effort. I've often had the situation where, you know, we're halfway done with some big project and we find out, you know, another team one floor down has been working on something that's substantially similar. And one or the other of us is probably going to have to give way or, you know, we, we go and, you know, deal with the enterprise about how we're going to launch two of these things that do almost exactly the same thing. You know, that duplication that people have an instinctive resistance to. So if it were searchable and discoverable, then, you know, sometimes that just won't happen. And you've also said like that for the open source analogy to kind of work, a company needs to have the right culture, what you've called a, an engineering culture rather than a budget focus. Well, yes. Uh, and that's actually one of the hardest requirements. Sometimes you can create an engineering culture within the technical arm of the company, even if the rest of the company has a budget culture. But of course, the problem in a budget culture is when you try to contribute to someone else's effort, you know, suppose I'm using a library that another part of the company has written to deal with uh, an interface to a partner of ours, and I'd like to add a feature to it. If that's under good stewardship in an engineering organization, I'd be able to create a pull request, get that feature in, no problem. In a budget organization, that's going to be seen as a risk to the other team's uh, schedule and scope because, you know, they have to integrate my code. There may be bugs in it that don't show up now in, in tests, but show up later on. And so managers sort of feel out of control of that. So oftentimes people just sort of self-censor instead of trying to add something. You know, if you if you send it over, you know that the first response is going to be, who are you and what's your charge code? Um, <laughs> so you just don't bother. Michael, one of the other things I've heard you talk about when going through your rules is hexagonal architecture. Can you explain what that is and why you like that approach? First of all, I should say the the pattern was identified by Alistair Coburn, who has since chosen to call it ports and adapters rather than hexagonal. 
I, I continue to call it hexagonal because I think that sticks better with people. It's, it's sort of more tactile somehow. But ports and adapters is the proper name that you'll find out on the net. The thing I like about it is that it causes you to view your technology choices and your user constituencies all sort of at the level of consumers of your domain rather than sort of the, the essential scaffolding that your domain sits in between. So if you take a typical layered architecture, your domain may be challenged by changes in persistence or in interface technology, or it may be challenged by new UI needs coming from the top. And it's sort of you know caught in the middle between these two. The concept of the, the hexagonal architecture is that your domain could stand alone and that you don't see persistence technology in your domain classes and functions. You don't see UI technology in your domain classes and functions. But rather, you have an adapter, which may be a small stack of layers that reaches from your domain to one of those uh, constituencies, to a, a group of users, or to a database, or to an external feed or monitoring system or something of that sort. In some sense, it sort of levels the playing ground as well and says, actually, your admin interface and your monitoring interfaces are first-class concerns, just like your uh, long-term persistent data storage is. Michael, before we wrap, I want to check in with you on a couple of other things that, that aren't related to architecture without, or not directly related to architecture without an end state. A big picture question first, in a blog post of yours from about a year ago, you wrote that you think we're in kind of a twilight period when it comes to software development for cloud native systems. Can you talk more about that and the, you know, the further reimagining that you, that you think is, might be necessary? I've found that we often have these kind of transitional technologies, not just in computing, but, but in human technology in general, that we can sort of recognize after the fact as being transitional, where it has most of the attributes of the old thing uh, and only a few of the attributes of the new thing. I think of digital audio tapes as an example of that. You know, I remember that. It was, you know, it was somewhere between the cassette era and the CD era. Uh, really what we wanted at that time was MP3s. We just, you know, didn't know how to get all the way there. Uh, and so what you'll see with these transitional technologies is adoption, but a rapid switch away from them. And I think running whole operating systems as VMs in the cloud is kind of in that transitional stage. It has most of the characteristics of running a server. You've got to, you know, admin your Etsy password file, and you've got to configure your log rotation. And, oh, yeah, you might fill up your log storage volume, even though it's a cloud server, and you've theoretically got infinite storage available. You've just got this tiny slice that's been provisioned as if it were a block device on a SCSI disk plugged into your server. And so it carries over a lot of the limitations and restrictions that you would have from running physical computers, including long boot up times, for example. I think actually since I wrote that, I wrote it when I was getting pretty excited about AWS Lambda. And I think since I wrote that, a lot of people have seen that the Lambda style of computing is really a powerful one. I think even containers maybe still are transitional on their way to something like Lambda. If you look at the way that functions as a service operate, you've got basically infinite storage available. It's just not right there next to you on the same silicon. The billing granularity now looks very, very good, like per second per invocation billing. The scaling model looks very, very good. There are still some things to be worked out in the programming model. The edit compile test cycle is, is pretty rough. Composing 
lambdas into a larger system still requires a lot of mental state. You have to hold a lot of context in your head about how all the different pieces are going to fit together. But I think that that's, that's the direction that we're going to see things going. So the kind of model that we got from text processing systems that Unix were, were based on, everything's a file uh, full of characters. We run processes from multiple users on, a, on an operating system. I think that that's going to break down and dissolve into its constituent parts. And we're going to see, we will see the emergence of something you would regard as a data center OS and a, a programming model for it. And we'll probably even see new languages that put the concerns of that environment front and center the way that C puts, you know, processing characters front and center. I just don't have the answers on what all of those are going to be. And we should mention that you're preparing a new edition of your book, Release It, Design and Deploy Production-Ready Software, which was originally published nearly 10 years ago, right? Yep. So what's new and uh, what kind of topics are you updating in this uh, forthcoming edition? Well, almost everything has been touched to some degree or another. At least 50% of the content is completely new. And another 25% is, is completely reworked. If you look at the things that have changed since 2007, we've got the entire microservices revolution. We've got all of DevOps. We've got the dominance of virtualization in the cloud. We've got a shift from proprietary expensive operation software to actually an embarrassment of riches in operations tools that are open source. So much so that one of the hard problems is even figuring out how to combine them or which ones should I use. So quite a few things have changed. Some of the essentials are still the same. You know, the, the emphasis on running in production is still the same. That hasn't changed. We still learn things in production that we won't learn anywhere else. And in fact, I think that's become a, a pretty widely adopted viewpoint. I think the stability patterns and anti-patterns are actually somehow more relevant now than when I first wrote them. Uh, because we're deploying things in much finer grained pieces. And so there are more boundaries, more interfaces, more opportunities for interfaces to fail. So that's uh, kind of the thesis of why there's a second edition. There's a whole new part uh, about sort of taking a view of our software in layers from the very bottom of the stack, the wires, the chips, the melted sand and spinning rust that makes everything work and gradually sort of zooming out through individual instances running on uh, machines to the interconnect layer. And how does DNS work in today's environment? How does an overlay network help me deploy my microservices? Out through the control plane and even a chapter on security in these distributed systems. And then there are two uh, new chapters, one on, well, long-term adaptation of systems and architecture, sort of as we've been talking about. Uh, and finally, one on the uh, emerging discipline of chaos engineering, which I've been involved in and is a particularly interesting and exciting approach to solving systemic problems um, by creating turbulence to learn how the system responds to it. Michael, this has been a, this has been a great conversation. Um, besides the book, can you tell us uh, what you've got coming up? Well, I have a few appearances coming up. I think by the time this episode airs, the upcoming ones are going to be QCon in San Francisco and the SEI's Saturn 2018 conference in Texas next May. Uh, that's what I've got on the books now. And if our listeners want to find out more about you and what you're working on, where, where should they go? I'm pretty active on Twitter. My handle is at mtnygard, and I keep my blog up and running at michaelnygard.com. Well, Michael Nygaard, thank you very much for joining us. Been a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening. You can view a video of our guest, Michael Nygaard's presentation, Architecture Without an End State, at Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. You can also see videos of Michael speaking about maneuverable architecture and stability patterns there. Go to safaribooksonline.com, and we'll have links to all these things in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.